Well, let me also take this occasion to wish all of you a Merry Christmas. I don't feel the love. That's the, that's the truth. In any case, as far as I'm concerned, Merry Christmas to you. Uh, we're gathered this evening to contemplate the great fact of the coming of the Son of God into the world to rescue us from our sins and reconcile us to God. And I invite you to turn in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, uh, where Luke was a historian inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, to tell us about the circumstances of Christ's birth. So turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and we will reflect together on verses 1 through 20. Let's hear God's word together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. <clears throat> this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while, they were, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn or guest room. So that word could be translated. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that though you are the eternal Son of God, you became flesh, that you might lift us up. Uh, from our sin and separation from God to yourself and to the Father, and for this we give thanks this evening. Uh, we know that apart from your Holy Spirit, Lord, we are unresponsive to the truth. We are hard-hearted and resistant. So we humbly ask that you would be pleased to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and that is give us eyes to see and hearts that are receptive rather than resistant to this glorious news of what you have come to accomplish for us. Amen. So, uh, by a quick show of hands, how many of you over the last roughly two years, at some point, either thought about watching less news or actually stopped watching as much news as you were, you were watching? Yeah, that's the sense I got. I'm glad you raised your hand. The illustration wouldn't have been as effective if it had been just two or three of you. 
uh, over the last two years, as I've talked to people, a, a refrain in my conversations has been, uh, I'm, I'm either planning on watching less news or I've stopped watching as much news as I did before because a lot of it's bad news and it's uh, undermining my joy, my effectiveness in, in terms of fulfilling my present responsibilities. Uh, bad news just fills me with either anger or anxiety. And so I'm cutting back. That's what bad news does. It saps us of hope, robs us of energy, fills us with perhaps anger and anxiety. Good news, on the other hand, has the opposite effect. It puts a spring in our step, gives us hope, and sets our heart aflame with joy. It refreshes us. Proverbs 25, 25 says, Like cold water to a thirsty soul is good news from a far country. Like cold water to a thirsty soul is good news from a far country. And tonight we're going to be considering together the best news of all. The good news about what the Son of God has come to do to meet, to meet us at our greatest need and bring us to God. And this news is intended by God to make our hearts soar. We'll consider this evening the trustworthiness of that good news, its reliability. Uh, second, we'll consider the heart of the good news. And third, the right response to the good news. Luke tells us that Jesus was born in the reign of Caesar Augustus. This was the high point of the Roman Empire. Uh, it was over three million uh, square miles in terms, it was actually bigger than mainland North America. 70 to 100 million people in terms of its population. Uh, this was Rome at its high point. And the decrees of Caesar would reverberate throughout the whole empire and accomplish his will. But Luke is careful to situate the birth of Christ uh, in that historic reign. And that helps us to recognize that what he, as a historian, is describing this evening is not make-believe, it's not fiction meant to inspire us. It's a historical event grounded in reality. Like if you had been there with the shepherds, you would have seen the baby uh, in the manger. Uh, we are looking at history, something that actually occurred. And this is essential to understand if we're to appreciate what God has done. So in the reign of Caesar, a decree goes out that there's, there's a census that causes Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, to leave the town of Nazareth and go to Bethlehem. Now we know from what Luke said earlier uh, that Mary conceived supernaturally through the agency of the Holy Spirit as a virgin. Uh, she was carrying the Messiah, uh, the Son of God. And so Mary at this point and Joseph were engaged but not yet married. They had not yet come together. Uh, and so they go to the city of Bethlehem, and Luke underscores the fact that this city is the city of David. Uh, now, I don't know if Mary and Joseph understood the significance of their going to Bethlehem, the significance of Jesus being born there. Uh, they may have understood it, they may not have. But there is an ancient prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, made centuries before this event, where God tells his people, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming is from of old, from ancient days. God tells his people, I'm sending you a king, a rescuer, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so the decree of Caesar obviously brings about his purposes, but Caesar didn't recognize that he was also uh, bringing about the purposes of God. God had promised his people that a savior would be born in Bethlehem, and God uses this decree, uh, orchestrates circumstances to bring about the fulfillment of his plan and purpose. God always keeps his word to his people, 
Every single promise of God is utterly reliable. Even the the most well-intended human promises can be thwarted by unforeseen circumstances. A father can tell his daughter, uh, I'm going to be home tonight, I'm going to read a story before you go to bed. They didn't get stuck in traffic. And for that reason, he's not able to fulfill his promise. That sometimes happens. Unforeseen circumstances thwart our promises. That's never the case with God's promises. He's never at the mercy of unforeseen circumstances. Indeed, he bends all circumstances and all things to his will to accomplish his purpose for his people. He always keeps his word. We often talk about fake news, false news. We look at the news and we don't know what to believe, what's true, what's false. Well, every word that God speaks to us is utterly reliable. It's true. It comes from his mouth. The message that we're going to look at tonight is the very word of God to you. And it's a message that you can build your life on, and it's a message that you are invited to trust in. So God's word to you is utterly reliable and trustworthy. Second, we note that we see in the angelic announcement the heart of the good news. So there are these shepherds tending the flock at night. It's dark. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere... The bright radiance of God's glory dispels the darkness all around them. Uh, God's glory, the, the brightness of his majesty, his majesty made visible, suddenly envelops them. And they're terrified. The Greek here is that they feared a great fear. This wasn't an ordinary fear, this was terror. And the, the magnitude of the announcement that's about to be made is underscored by the fact that an angel of the Lord has come to speak to them. An angelic being has come with good news of great joy. Uh, So good, so amazing, so wonderful is this news that after the first angel announces his message, his good news, all of heaven erupts in praise. That one angel is joined by a heavenly host, a multitude, a whole choir of angels, and they begin to sing glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Uh, Scripture tells us that angels are looking with anticipation and expectation at the saving work of God. They are eager to see how this work of salvation unfolds in history. And the angels in heaven realize at this moment with the birth of Christ that God's ancient promise of redemption has come to fruition. Long before David and even Abraham, at the dawn of creation, God promised our first father, Adam, that he was going to raise up a savior, a warrior, a king, who was going to undo the destructive effects of his rebellion. He is going to put things right. And the angels in heaven for millennia are waiting and watching as they see God's purpose unfolding. Who is the savior? Who is this king? And here at last, when we get to Luke 2, we see God's ancient promise coming to its full flowering. Uh, A human being who was watching this scene unfold might have said this is a very ordinary occurrence, just the birth of another kid, another baby. But the angels knew better. The angels knew that this is the climax of God's saving purpose for mankind. And so heaven sings in response to the birth of Christ. The Savior that humanity, that even the angels have expected and and anticipated for all of these centuries and millennia has come. The essence of the angelic announcement 
is that a Savior has come. This Savior is Christ, which is a way of uh, underscoring the fact that Jesus is a king from the line of David. Israel's greatest king was King David. And from his line arises King Jesus. But Jesus is more than simply a human king. He is certainly a human king. Uh, He he shares our humanity in in every possible sense. Uh, Jesus, though, is also the Son of God become flesh. The beginning of John's gospel tells us the Word became flesh. The eternal Son of God, who dwelt in unapproachable glory and majesty at the right hand of God, came into the world and became like one of us, became a human being for us and our salvation. He came low to bring us high. With the coming of Jesus, God himself enters his creation to put things right. And he comes, says the angel, to save. He is a savior. Now, if you're a first century Jew, you would have said the thing we need the Messiah or the king to do is to rescue us from the Romans. We've been subjugated by this powerful empire, and we need a political Messiah who will bring us political freedom. Perhaps some of you feel that way. I don't know. But that was the expectation. We need saving from an empire that's too strong for us. But actually, Israel's need, and indeed our need, goes much deeper than that. If we look at Israel's history... She doesn't experience one misery after another, one defeat after another, because she has a small army or a weak king or lacks true generals. The reason she experiences defeat after defeat is because she persistently refuses to submit herself to God. Israel is rebellious. Israel does what Israel wants to do and disregards the laws and commands of God. Her will is locked in opposition to her creator and savior, and she rebels again and again. Never mind that God had blessed his people over and over again, had mercy on them, delivered them over and over again. They remain firmly entrenched in their rebellion, and they, and they act contrary to his will. Which is why God says to his people in Isaiah 65, verses 2 and 3, this is God speaking, All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people. Hands open in mercy and kindness. All day long, I held up my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. Israel didn't fundamentally need salvation from the Romans. Israel needed salvation from Israel. She needed to be rescued from herself. As we look at Israel's story, we recognize that in a profound sense, that's our story. We were created by God to center our lives on Him. We were created by God to honor Him in absolutely everything that we do. Uh, We were meant to ask the question, God, how can I glorify you and honor you in absolutely every sphere of life? God, how can my marriage honor you? How can the use of my money and time honor you? How How can my goals reflect your will so that you are honored? That ought to be, ought to have been rather the uh, heartbeat of our lives, putting God first. But the essence of our misery is that we have taken God off the throne and we've put ourselves there. And instead of asking God, what do you want from me? We say, what do I want for myself? Our lives are driven by the question, what do I want? What do I want to do with this money? What do I want to do with this time? What do I want out of this marriage? What do I want out of life? It's about me, it's about my agenda. 
And in pursuing our own agenda rather than God's, we rebel against his commands and his will. We are guilty before him. Our relationship to him is severed and we are under his judgment. That's the sad truth about every single person outside of Jesus. Sad truth of, is about Israel. And that fact is what explains the sheer terror the shepherds felt when they see the glory of the Lord. You might think when God draws near, people would get suddenly joyful and excited. But again and again we see in Scripture when God draws near, people run. So when Adam sins and God draws near, you know what he does? He goes and he hides. He bolts. The prophet Isaiah, when he sees the glory of the Lord, says, Woe, is, woe to me, woe is me. I'm a, a man of unclean lips. And the shepherds also, when they see the brightness of God's presence revealed, they, they feel their sinfulness, their guilt, their unworthiness to be in the presence of God. And it's one of the reasons the Bible tells us we fear death even. We fear not fundamentally death as such, but the death under the death. Standing as guilty sinners and rebels before the holy presence of God. That's what we fear. That's our deepest need. And according to Luke, that's why Jesus came into the world. He is the Savior who rescues us from the power and the guilt of sin. He, though he is the eternal Son of God, became man. He humbled himself. He yielded himself to God. And at every point in his life, Jesus didn't say, what do I want? He said, Father, what do you want? And again and again, he submitted himself to the Father. And the climactic act of self-renunciation on the part of the Son was the cross. Contemplating the judgment he was going to incur on behalf of sinners, Jesus says to the Father in Gethsemane, Father, not take this cup from me, this cup of judgment if possible, but not as I will, but as you will. And of course, there was no other way. So Jesus went to the cross, bearing the punishment the judgment that we all deserve. And he drank that punishment, that divine judgment upon our sins to the last drop. And when he had paid the full price for our sins, he rose again from the dead so that every single person who would ever place their faith in Jesus might experience the complete cleansing of their sin, the restoration of their relationship with God, and fresh power to live no longer for themselves, but for God. That's the good news that the angels announce. That's the news that is meant by God to bring joy to the whole world. Tonight, it is possible to know that we have peace with God, that there is no longer any hostility. The hostility has ceased, and he is for us as our Heavenly Father. That's the angelic message. It's for all of us. Now, the question becomes, what's the right response to this message? Well, the first thing to do with this message uh, if it's good and true, what do you do with the message? You believe it. You trust in it. You act on the basis of it. And that's precisely what we see the shepherds doing. Uh, as soon as they hear the message, they, they don't sit around waiting, thinking about what they need to do. They bolt for Bethlehem. Uh, they take God at his word. They believe that what the angel has said is true, and so they act on it. And that's the challenge for every single one of us tonight. Do you believe this message that God himself tells you a message of a Savior. Are you trusting in Him? Do you recognize your helplessness apart from Jesus, your need for a Savior, and are you right now resting in that Savior? This message invites us all to come to the end of ourselves and to come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't make myself clean in the sight of God. I can't heal the relationship with God. I can't change my own heart, but you can. 
And I believe that through your work, you have. And so I trust in you. Are you trusting in Jesus tonight? This message is an invitation to all of us to put our trust and confidence in him. And if you're not, the sober truth is that in a profound sense, you're a stranger to the joy of Christmas. It doesn't matter how good the food is and how festive the celebrations are this evening. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the joy that just pulsates through this passage. You don't have the joy of Christmas. So the good news, which comes to us from God through his angel, challenges all of us this evening to believe, to rest in Jesus as your Savior. Are you doing that this evening? Second response, though, is to take this news that you believe and share it. Notice that's, what, that's exactly what the shepherds do. Uh, they show up in Bethlehem, and they're telling everybody, and all who heard it wondered at, the she- at what the shepherds told them. Notice, they didn't share this good news because they had to. They weren't squeamish about sharing the good news. There wasn't hand-wringing, oh, we've got to talk about this, but I, I, it's hard to do. I feel self-conscious. No, there was this spontaneous explosion of joy and enthusiasm. Here's what the angels said, believe it. This good news announced by the angel is meant to be shared with other people. It's meant to flow out of us and be essential to who we are, and so we talk about it often. Not under compulsion, but because it's such wonderful news. If you woke up tomorrow and discovered that uh, taxes and unreciprocated love had been banished from the earth, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be silent about that. right? You would shout it from the rooftops. Nobody would have to coerce you into saying it. It's such good news that it has to be shared. Well, this is better news. It's the news of what God has done to reconcile us to himself. So the characteristic posture of God's people should be this joyful sharing of who Jesus is and what he's done. Third response is Mary's, 19. Mary's response is in some ways quieter. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary's portrayed by Luke as a very reflective and thoughtful person. She hears the news brought by the uh, shepherds and she molds it over. She ponders. And sometimes that's what it takes to understand something. Insight is not always immediate. It takes a little while for the penny to drop. And so it's good for us to take time to wrestle, to meditate on things. That's what we see Mary doing. It's perhaps one of the reasons, uh, that part of the reason Jesus was such a thoughtful and wise individual is because of the stamp of his mother. Of course, ultimately the blessing of God. Of course, Mary raised him. Uh, what Mary's response shows is that this good news rewards reflection. Uh, It's simple enough for young children to understand it and believe it, but it's so deep that Christians have spent 2,000 years reflecting on the gospel, the good news about Jesus. They have filled libraries with their reflections, but they've never gotten to the bottom of it. There's always more gold and more treasure to find in the gospel. That's an invitation to us to develop a habit of reflection and meditation on Christ and his work, to think about it, to mull it over. Uh, Meditation is a bit like eating a hard candy. You toss it around in your mouth. You savor its sweetness. Do the same thing with the truth about Christ. You toss it around in your mind. You ask questions. You look at it from different perspectives. And as you do that again and again, through a disciplined life of reflection on Christ, we become increasingly people of substance people who increasingly reflect his character. This is a time when we make, it's time of year we make resolutions. Let me encourage you, this year, resolve to be like Mary and meditate more on Christ and his work, recognizing that that's a means God uses to make you more like his son. And if you're here tonight and you're not sure about this, you're not sure what you believe about this, you have your doubts, 
then I would encourage you to take your cue from Mary. Sometimes there's this caricature of Christians that, you know, the Bible and Christianity doesn't encourage thought. That's nonsense. Uh, scripture encourages thoughtfulness. So if you're not sure where you land, uh, ask questions. Keep reflecting. Talk to people. Read books. Uh, don't just blow it off. Mary's response is an invitation to you to continue to reflect until perhaps the penny drops for you. And the final response, the response we see in the shepherds, is joy. Uh, we see joy throughout this passage, don't we? The angel says, this is uh, good news of great joy for the whole earth. Uh, the angels sing God's praises, and here at the end, the shepherds praise God uh, joyfully. Recognizing that your sins have been washed away. Recognizing that you have a Savior in Jesus. Recognizing that you are no longer a rebel, but a son or daughter of the living God. Should make your heart sing this evening. You might have troubles. Uh, we all have our troubles and heartaches. But this news is able to help you set aside even those sorrows this evening and give praise and thanks to God for the goodness that he's shown you in Jesus Christ. The response of the shepherds is an invitation to us all to give thanks to God for his great salvation and to rejoice with all of our hearts in him. May God bless you. Amen.